Pastor Chris, our senior pastor, told me to make sure that he expresses to you how much he loves you and misses you. And on behalf of him and his family, they'll be back soon, okay? So let's pray for safe travel, all right? Amen. So now it is my honor and pleasure to present to you today's speaker, a brother who is an inspiration for me. Um, I've had the blessed opportunity to watch him grow and grow and grow into this tremendous man of God. So much to the point to where we don't even call him by his first name anymore. His name is Captain, Captain Tryhard. Now he gets that because whenever pastor gives us an assignment, whether it's scripture to read or a book to read, he's always the first one to finish it. That being said, he's blessed. So I pray that you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a softened heart to receive the, what the Spirit has given him today. Amen? So please welcome to the stage, Mr. Brady Webster. With Veterans Day on Wednesday, we do want to take a minute to honor our veterans. If you've served in the armed forces, I ask you to stand up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. We do honor our veterans. Sometimes they represent the best of us. And regardless of the reason they enlisted and joined, doesn't matter. They accepted the responsibility, potentially put themselves on the firing line. So we honor you today. <clears throat> so, yeah, absolutely. So before we get into our message, I did want to share something. So if you'll go to the sixth chapter of Isaiah, we're going to read his vision of the throne room. Okay? So before that, I got a little work to do. Isaiah, the prophet, is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. That matters. Isaiah was an aristocrat. He had access to the kingly court, he had a family, he had wealth, he had it going on from the standpoint of the world. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, we read this. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. His train, the train of his robe, the robe of righteousness. This is Jesus on the throne. You're like, wait, that's the Old Testament. Yep. That was Jesus on the throne, and his righteousness filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each had six wings, with two covered his face, with two covered its feet, and with two it flew. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The message I'm about to preach is on repentance. We just need to get comfortable with me yelling now. <laughs> That's called the trihagion. It's a literary tool the Hebrews used in writing to emphasize something that was important. You remember Jesus in the gospel says, verily, verily, I tell you the truth. He was creating emphasis on what he was saying, but this is three times. The superlative, no higher, important, very important, most important, God is holy, is what you can take from that. 
In Revelation, we find another superlative. It's woe, woe, woe. In John's vision, in the Revelation, it's an eagle crying, woe, 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 to all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, we believe this is post-rapture. So it's making a reference to what? The tribulation. Woe, bad, woe, badder, woe, baddest. Not in the good way. And the posts of the door moved, and a voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs off the altar, white hot. An angel can't even pick it up, he used tongs. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. This is the call to prophet. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Now that's great. You have the trihagion and you have a vision of the throne room of heaven and all that is beautiful and it's part of scripture and it's Isaiah, a prophet of prophets. But Isaiah 6 opens with this. In the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah reigned 52 years. 52 years of peace. This is the split kingdom period. And they started to take back land under his reign. This is not something to be taken lightly. 52 years of the same monarch ruling and reigning. People are born, people die. New generations King Uzziah died. Daniel 2.21 says, the Lord raises kings and he sits them down for his glory. Now we as Christians, Christian brother, Christian sister, we should have an eternal perspective that that is what matters. The king is on the throne and the kings of this earth are lifted up and sat down for his glory. Now this is 700 years I just read you before the birth of Christ. So you gotta think. So Isaiah is the call to prophet. He lives his life, he prophesies for around 40 years, okay? In Isaiah 53, he predicts the suffering savior. That's where we get the the verse, by his stripes we are healed, okay? 700 years, fast forward, Christ is born, the angels have prepared Joseph and Mary for the birth of the king, right? They raise him, he moves forward into his earthly ministry at 30, he changes the world with 12 apostles, right? He goes to the cross to die a substitutionary death for you and I, that through his blood we can be saved and have access to heaven because we're sinners. That's the gospel message. But all this happened after 
King Uzziah died. Yes, it's important because it's God's Holy Spirit-inspired word, but you have 2,700 years. Your kingdom perspective needs to look toward glory. Now to our message. (laughs) Okay, so... This is a message on repentance. So pastor asked me to prepare a message and in prayer, repentance was the theme that kept coming up. That's why I'm gonna yell because you say repentance and it automatically jumps you back into the Old Testament, right? Repent, repent. That's how it feels to me. But we have some quotes and what I found online is uh, Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan. He published a paper in, in 1668 on the doctrine of repentance. So I utilize that for a lot of material in addition to the Bible, okay? I have some quotes here on repentance. I'm gonna try and and frame it up and the question I'm gonna try and answer for you is, what is repentance, okay? And then hopefully you can have some self-reflection when you leave here and you can look inside because we all have to cross that gate on our own. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, Sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. That's strong. Why do you read guys who were running around in the 1500s and 1600s? Because they said stuff like that. Thomas Watson, the author, the Puritan I made reference to, here's his quote. And this is the summary of his 90-page analysis on repentance. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly transformed. Okay? So repentance, then, is a fruit of of your change, of your regeneration, of your salvation, okay? So we have words. Now, you guys know that I like videos, and you guys know that I like words. So here we go. So there are two words used in the Bible in Hebrew for repent. The first is nacham, and I think maybe Gil could correct me if I pronounced it wrong. Uh, Not that he was alive back then, but just that he's very... Uh, attuned to scripture and a blessing in all of our lives. Um, you can find an example of this word used uh, in Numbers 23:19, which should be very familiar foundation because Pastor Melissa uses this verse a lot. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall not make it good? Okay. God needs no repentance. The next word, pronounced shub, probably use sub. For those of you who want to reference the Blue Letter Bible or Logo software, uh, just take it for what it is. This word, used 600 times in the Old Testament, means a change of mind, typically towards sin. We have an example. I'm sorry, Naham means a strong desire to change. A change of mind typically towards sin. We have an example of this word in the prophet Hosea 11.5. He shall not return, he's talking about Israel. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, 
but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refused to return, okay? He's talking about the Assyrian exile, right? And then there's a cost to not repenting. And he shares, he shares it here. Uh, but he's, uh, he's making a prediction uh, to what happens with the Assyrians when you fast forward time a little bit. Okay, and Greek, in the New Testament, this is the word for repent, metanoia, a change of mind, purpose, and action. We have an example of this in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so I want to frame up repentance, why we're even talking about it. This next, this next verse, Matthew 7, 25. So when I came to foundation, I visited with my son. Pastor gave me his business card. And on the back of it, he has this verse and this version. Um, because this is foundation. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So what I'm going to try and show you and what I'm going to try to to make you know is that repentance is the foundation for your salvation, okay? And the reason it's important is because we are the church of Christ and we are a big body and we span the earth. And there are many different churches, and there are ravenous wolves preaching doctrines of demons. And that is true. And you need, as a child of God, the eyes to see it and know the gospel truth. So without repentance, you get things like, Jesus loves you, believe, and then, brother... Sister, you get access to Jesus' stuff. You can name it and you can claim it because you're not that bad. They missed the whole point of the gospel. Who told me? Jesus. So last week's Kingdom Perspective Sermon, does everybody remember last week? When Jamie preached, he used uh, Star Trek as an example. Yeah, he used Star Wars. That's a big difference for those of you that know. And I heard like this little hum start to happen. I'm talking about repentance and y'all get on. Okay. That's what matters? Okay. Mm-hmm. When, when pastor's like, hey, read the Bible, Captain Tryhard does go first, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so here's how the spirit of unity works. So pastor, months back, asked Jamie to put together a message, asked me to put together a message. So I'm working on mine. I'm listening to Jamie's last week. And Jamie actually, he ends. He had, he had three points for a kingdom perspective. The Bible is your foundation. It is your filter For all the mess and noise that this world has to offer, it ain't going away, it's getting louder, and we don't need to say the world is getting, it's already been. 
The Bible is the filter. The third point he uses is follow. And then he goes in to explain and talk to us about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil. The devil is real. And we are, we are tempted and we fall because of three things. The world, our flesh, and the devil. The devil has set up these worldly systems that we engage in and participate in, and they're pulling us away from God. So repent, one of the translations of repent is to return. So use the word return. Well, that's got to be a stand, return to a standard of truth because nothing else satisfies. But Jamie is talking to us about the temptations in the wilderness. And it ends, what happens when it ends? Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights after the baptism, when the Spirit descends, you hear the Father's voice, and Jesus comes out of the water. Whoo, that's beautiful. They're present together in the Bible story. And then we have, he's in the wilderness, getting tempted by the devil himself. He rebukes him with the word. He is the logos. He uses the rhema. That's the sword of the spirit. And then the angels come and minister to him and help strengthen him up. Okay, and then, and then it's game on. Anybody the Lord uses, he breaks first. The Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. That's Charles Spurgeon again. So true. Jesus was in the wilderness, no food, no water, 40 days, 40 nights, gets tempted by Satan himself. And you think God's going to let you slide? Angels come minister to him, strengthen him up, and then his earthly ministry continues in, in the priestly way where he's speaking to people. What does he say? The very first word of his ministry from the temptation that we have in the Bible, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, say it with me, repent, don't make it hard to say, it's part of the New Testament message. It's Jesus' message. It's bookends. He opens with repentance. And the next verse, Luke 24, 7, this is post-resurrection. This is prior to the ascension. This is what he says. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Bookends of the ministry. Repent. Repent. I've defined repent. I'm going to say it a lot, and I may start yelling, but just I may be yelling at me. Okay, so just prepare yourself. Then he starts moving the message through the disciples, the 12. And in Mark 6, 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. Okay? So to, to better frame this up, we have two types of grief or sorrow, depending on the translation you have. 2 Corinthians 7.10. If you're trying to follow the verses in your Bible, I commend you. Your fingers might get sore because I'm jumping around a lot. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance Leading to salvation, 
not to be regretted. So the, the thing you did that you repent of is not to be regretted because God needed that. That's what it took. Do you think the thief on the cross that was in heaven with Jesus that day is regretting his repentance that happened on the cross? What did he say? He said, we're here rightly. You're not. So he was, that was confession. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Okay, I'm going to spend a minute and talk about the difference of those two types of grief, sorrow. Okay, so you have basically to think about it, use the cross. So worldly sorrow produces death is horizontal, okay? It's horizontal. It's, it's thinking in terms of I did something wrong, it's triggered my emotion, maybe it's made me sad, but I recognize it. But what is at the heart of it is what are they going to think of me? What is this going to cost me? I'm better than this. I shouldn't have done that. I know better. It's, it's superficial. It doesn't last. Because when you recognize that something's wrong and you see that it goes away, does then what you thought might have been repentance go away too? See the superficiality? Horizontal. Okay, vertical repentance is very different. It's, it's very different because you recognize sin. Anything that comes between you and God. Okay, what is he? Holy, holy, holy. He is a righteous judge. And to judge rightly, all of us have sinned. So what do we deserve? Wrath. Yes, that's true. So in our repentance that's true, we have to get to the root of the problem. And if the root of the problem is anything but me, it's not true repentance. And it doesn't last. And that, my friends, is the first stop you have on the Romans road. Romans 3.10, all are bad. Okay. By the way, we're born into a sin state, so we have to come to this repentance. That's a grace gift by seeing God's face. Just like in the throne room where Isaiah was, he sees God high and lifted up. And as an aristocrat who has access, money, nothing to really worry about, his first proclamation as a prophet is, I am undone. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And the sorrow of the world that produces death. Now, I do like words, and you can do a word study on this. It's really fascinating that death in the Bible translates to death. So how does repentance happen? Okay, I think I've beat on what it is enough, but how does it happen? It's an act. This is what Thomas, says, Thomas Watson says. It's an act partly by the word and by the Holy Ghost. So partly by the word and by the Holy Ghost. What do I mean by that? The word is the vehicle with which God uses to deliver 
repentance through the power of the Holy Ghost. So you can be driving a Ford, but that won't lead to repentance, godly sorrow. It needs the power of the Holy Ghost. I said Ford, no less. First service blew up. Chevy? Dodge? <clears throat> I have a Ford and a Chevy. Get to say that. Okay, so we have examples. <laughs> now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them what? To repent. But that was, it's, it's Acts 2.37. That was Pentecost. That was when they received the Holy Ghost poured out on them. They spoke in tongues. There were people there that had different dialects and they could understand the gospel truth in their own native tongue. Mind you, the guys who were speaking, just, okay, go with me for a second. I'm off track, but that's kind of what I do. So, you have, you have somebody in, in any of our circles, if they know two languages, somewhat common, okay? If they know three languages, okay, we automatically identify them as intelligent. If they know four languages, we're like, whoa, we can't hang out, <laughs> right? Am I wrong? Okay, so everybody here in this, in, in, on the day of Pentecost was hearing the gospel truth in their own language. Remember, where were these men called? They're fishermen. <laughs> They're fishermen. They weren't educated by any standard of being impressive. They weren't the guys that you would see that would, I mean, Peter, all through the Bible, uh, he wouldn't be patient enough to learn another language if it wasn't given to him by the Holy Spirit, right? So we have another example of the word being preached and the Holy Spirit igniting the fire. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. Okay, so this is Peter again preaching at Joppa. So what's going on here? Little backstory. Peter's prejudice, it's true. So he was a Jew, and Jews are very, uh, they, they stick in their culture, they do this, they don't do that, because God said, in the books of Moses, you know, you don't step out of line, otherwise you get your hand slapped. Okay, so, so Peter struggled with this, okay, up, to, up to and including getting checked by Paul. Think about that, these titans of the gospel moving forward that we now know, like, they, over what? Over Peter didn't want to eat unclean food because he was a pinky-up Hebrew, okay? But in Joppa, he receives a vision at Simon the Tanner's house on the roof. He receives a vision from heaven. There's a sheet coming down, and he hears the message. It's full of meat. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Okay? So God is a meat eater. Okay. 
not the point. What the vision actually meant was, is this truth will move outside of my covenant people, Israel, to the Gentiles, and I told you to follow me, follow in this. Up the road at Caesarea is a Roman, Cornelius, and he's getting a vision too. He hears an angel tell him, hey, he's a good man. He, he, he reveres God. He gives to the poor. And so he's got, a, he's got a soft heart. But he's running into questions, okay? Because he's a Roman. Remember, Romans, they had many gods, multifaceted. They even had unnamed gods. Remember, Paul? You even have an unnamed god. Okay, so that's the world Cornelius is in, but the angel tells him, hey, there's a soul winner down the street, down the road. Send your people, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Bring him here. Okay, so it's working in both of them, right? Cornelius wants to be saved. Peter doesn't want to move. A Roman. The Jews believed the Messiah was going to come and eradicate the Romans and raise the kingdom up. But the kingdom was invisible, and just like Christ told Nicodemus, that ain't what I'm here for, brother. So he calls Peter, Peter comes, and he's, what's this about? And that's where the story picks up. So Peter begins to preach the gospel to these Romans, the Gentiles, unclean. He got the vision he received, he followed. Took Peter a while, but he got there. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. So who's doing the work? Peter? No. The Holy Ghost is doing the work. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, is where the power is. Peter's still a fisherman without God. And he barely fished right. God told him how to throw your net on the other side. So in Thomas Watson's 90-page report, we have some ingredients that reflect true repentance. So we're going to cover those. Ingredient one of true repentance is sight of sin. Now this is a grace gift to recognize that sin is sin. What is sin? Anything that comes between you, us, and God is sin. So one of, I told you, one of, the word, one of the translations of repentance is to return. So it's re, to return from all this noise that you put between us. So in Luke 15, we have the story everybody knows. But Luke 15 opens up and you have the Pharisees asking Jesus questions. Okay, And he answers the questions in parabolic form. He told parables, stories. He he told the story of the lost coin. So the Hebrew listeners were like, get that money. That's important. We agree. Celebration in heaven with the angels because she found the coin. Uh, the story of the lost sheep. You may not know this, but they write songs about that parable. Uh, he found the sheep. Hey, that's, a that's agriculture. There's money involved. They're like, yep, that's good. Celebration in heaven. Jesus tells them, is telling them that, hey, there's more celebration in heaven over one lost sinner than all those who don't need repentance because they're too good, okay? So he's starting to knock a little harder on the door of their heart. Then he opens up with the prodigal son. So 
he tells this story to his Jewish audience, and immediately they had to be inflamed. Right? This is the kind of story that got him killed. The son wants his inheritance from his father. The younger son was entitled to a third of the inheritance of his father's wealth. Okay, this is not America. This is not uh, live your best life now, individual me. By the way, if you're living your best life now, you have no eternal perspective of what heaven is. Uh, it's the honor-shame culture, okay? So it's still prevalent in the Middle East and Asia. You hear about this. You're probably familiar. Everybody tracking? Okay, honor-shame. So you step outside the line of your family, you bring shame upon yourself, your father's house, your, everybody who's passed on, the, your family name, you have brought all the shame upon your family name because, man, you didn't do right. You don't ask your dad for what is not yours yet because it's yours when he dies. So you don't even care. That's what he did. Father complies, gives him what he wants. He goes off down the road from where he grew up was Vegas. So he goes to Vegas and, you know, by the end of all his spending and lascivious living, He's destitute. So he wasn't even winning at the tables because he had to pay for his hotel room. I read that online. <laughs> but he's got no more friends. Okay? And he's starting to see things a little differently, which, by the way, God needed that. I talked about brokenness. God didn't need it. This kid needed it. And here's one of the most beautiful pieces of that story where he had sight for sin. And when he came to himself, he's starting to recognize, I had all this, I did all this. I brought shame upon my family's name. The second ingredient of true repentance is sorrow. We have... Uh, I spared y'all a little bit and didn't include all those verses on one slide. I tried, but my wife loves me and y'all. So here's where we have Jesus is eating with the Pharisee, okay? So, and what's cool about this is I'll just, this is me off track again, but I can see in this Bible that my great-grandfather read this story May 3rd, 1970. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. Okay? She wasn't a woman who lived in the city. Tracking? Makes sense? That's Okay. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house when he was having dinner there, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. Okay? She's bold, and this is what her sorrow has produced in her. She's going in, she's a, so she's not probably from the same area the Pharisee lives, safe to assume. She's bold and even going into his house, okay? She stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee had bidden 
which had been saw it, he spoke in himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman that is. She's a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I got something to say to you. Say it. There was a certain creditor, so he goes into this story. He talks about somebody who has been forgiven a lot will display this versus somebody who doesn't need forgiveness. So he's still chanting that song where you guys are walking around acting like you don't need repentance. You need it. You're not aware of your destitute state either. But this is the beauty in what the sorrow produces. He checks this guy. See this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. It's custom. She washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which is custom. But this woman, since I came, has not stopped kissing my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman anointed my feet with ointment. Expensive, it cost her something. And the alabaster jar cost her something too. Expensive. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And this is the most beautiful part of the story. It says, and he said unto her, so remember what Jesus' eyes are like, a flaming fire. He's looking at her, and he's talking to the Pharisee and everybody else in earshot. He lifts her face. Thy sins are forgiven. Thy faith has healed you. Go in peace. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. The third ingredient of true repentance is confession, okay? So go with me. This sounds normal. This sounds obvious. But when you see the face of God and you recognize you're far from that, you need a, you need a Savior, you're going to continue to sin. You want to turn away from that, but you want to have a, a repository, a trusted source. Confess it to God and confess it to one another, James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Here is your church body and discipleship. Because if you don't confess your sins, what is one of the devil's names? The accuser. But what if you're accused from something that you've already confessed? So not confessing then places you in this trap of your own choosing. Because guess what? That little voice of the enemy and his systems and doubt and fear, they're going to come knocking. So I would tell you, not confessing your sin is leaving the door open for whatever might blow in. I can't say it enough. Discipleship is key. Somebody you trust 
that you can lay your dirty dark. We all have these dusty corners of our life. All of us. I told you, Romans 3.10 is the first stop on the Romans road to salvation where no one's good. Jeremiah says the heart is wicked above all else. Who can know it? You need a new heart, but you have to walk out your repentance. You, excuse me, you have to walk out your faith. Right? We're all, so sanctification. In America, sanctification. We, we, we believe on Christ and what he did, and he is our atoning sacrifice. And the rest of our life, until we're called home to glory, is sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ through our ongoing repentance and offletting of this sin that so easily entangles. And where is the devil? He's lurking, roaring lion. I couldn't preach without saying lion. I love them. The fourth ingredient for true repentance is shame. Stay with me. So not just a general shame or woe is me, but a recognition of what it is that you do when you place something between you and God. Remember, repent is to return. It's return to me. Our sin breaks the heart of the Father, that should produce a wailing. That should produce a, there's nothing more important to me than God on high who came down in the flesh and hung on a tree to bleed for me. In my sin, I have the nails and hammer in my hands. I put him there. The prodigal son again. And the son said to him, Father, this is his little rehearsed speech that he's going to give after he came to himself. I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And you got to think he's, he's broken, busted, disgusted. And yet God used pig slop to bring about this shame because he had recognized what it did. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's why this story should be called the prodigal of the loving father, the, the parable of the loving father. Because what does he do next? Shut up, boy. Get him a ring. Put a robe on. Slaughter the fatted calf. Party time. There's another brother, but we don't have time. The fifth ingredient of true repentance is hatred of sin. Hatred of sin in all its forms. It's when someone asks you, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I'm saved? The answer is not necessarily, well, do you know Jesus? A better question is, does Jesus know you? But the question is, what's your relationship with your sin? Does it produce conviction? That's the sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit within you, leading you into all truth, convicting you of the things that you need to repent for. Here's an example of what that looks like. This is Jesus. And when you say, hey, what would Jesus do? Well, right here we have flipping tables and cracking whips is an option. 
When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Because what is it? A house of prayer. And the final ingredient for true repentance is turning from sin. Turn from it. And we have an example of this in Ephesians 5.8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. I missed a word. We're going to take a minute and uh, take communion together. Uh, if you don't have supplies, maybe raise your hand. So this is what Christians do. This is one of the sacraments. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord instituted the, la- instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. So he's gathered with the apostles at the table. We've all seen paintings. Well, here's the significance of that. The gospel message is this, that we were created and it took us one chapter to fall and to sin. We are born into a sin state. We need a savior. The day of atonement did not save us from our sins. They looked forward to the Messiah in faith. We look back to the Messiah in faith and all of our sins hung him on the tree. The Lord came down and he walked the Via Dolorosa. So we're at the supper and he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And they don't know exactly what he's talking about because it hasn't happened yet. He broke bread and said, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But what he meant when he said that was from the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, Gethsemane translates to olive press in Aramaic. And that's where the pressing begun. That's where his body began to be broken. That's where he was sweating drops of blood in prayer. Do you know? He came back to the disciples, the three that came with him. And he said, don't you even care for me? How many times? Three. He came back three times. The olive is pressed in ancient Israel three times. The first time is used to anoint kings and priests. The second time, the oil is used for healing. And he kept returning. And the third time, the oil is used for everything else, food, cosmetics, everything else. The pressing of his body had begun in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then the Roman Legion, the Roman Legion shows up. We are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what happens in one of the gospels? I am he. They fall down as dead men at the mention of his name. And he takes, he lets them take, and by the way, Peter's there too. And by, if you, here's what you need to know about Peter is he didn't find a sword on the side of the road. He was packing. He cut somebody's ear off. Okay, that's Peter in a nutshell. In the garden. So he goes, he's tried and he's beaten 
He's flogged, he's spit upon, and the shame of the Via Dolorosa, which translates to the way of suffering, is what this bread is all about. And that is what we remember as we take and eat. He raised his cup of wine and he said, this is my blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Well, what was he talking about? His body was scourged, was torn, was beat, was bruised. Then he had to carry his own cross. He was so beat they had to have another man help him. He gets to Calvary. The cross goes in the ground. They raise him on the cross to be crucified in front of John, the disciple whom he loves and his mom. Yes, it was hard for her, a sword that pierced her own soul, but it was, he had to see his mom and John amongst the scoffers and his blood shed and the forgiveness of sin is the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. At the point of death, his blood spilled out for us to remove all the sin that we will do, that we have done, that they did, that everyone you know has done, that put him on the cross through his choice. We remember because that is the taste of salvation. That is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your unmerited favor that is that grace and the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son to hang on a cross for everything we've done. We ask you to open our ears to hear your word. Let it sink down into our spirit that we could walk out of here confident and our hearts would sing with anticipation of being able to tell others about you. Lord, we pray for our veterans here and abroad. We pray, Lord, that there will be opportunity for them to know you. We pray for an eternal perspective of love and grace. We pray for the calm, Lord, to cut through the mess of this world. And we know that you are on the throne. So even if, no matter what comes, we are children of God and our message is to present you and your good news to the world that needs so badly to hear you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah's mighty name. Amen.